Welcome to The Emergent Human. We're exploring optimized health and body spirituality and post-conventional living. I'm Michael Osterlink, an executive coach, somatic educator, and transpersonal guide, and I'm your host. Just a short update. I want to uh, let folks know that at Perion Zoe, we just launched a new mastermind group called Zoe Arete Collective, which is a community of co-creators, thinkers, performers, and finders committed to experiencing a life of excellence integrating a systems-based approach, body, mind, and spirit, to greater being. I'd also like to do a shout out to Catherine Studley's company, The Only Consultant, which is the name of her company, who is my new marketing company for my podcast and coaching program. And uh, you can find out more on her on Instagram at the underscore only underscore consultant. Today's show is brought to you by Cosper Scafidi, an amazing body worker in the Northern Virginia area who has integrated different somatic practices into his work, including Rolfing. To learn more about his work, you can visit his website at www.cosperscafidi.com. Our guest today is Brian C. Marescu, author of The Immortality Key, The Secret History of Religion with No Name. Brian graduated Phi Beta Kappa from Brown University with a degree in Latin, Greek, and Sanskrit. He's an alumni of Georgetown Law and a member of the New York Bar. He's been practicing law internationally for 15 years. Welcome, Brian. Oh, it's great to be here, man. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you on. I've been looking uh, forward to this conversation. So, you know, just a little background on your book. You, you, it's a groundbreaking dive into the role psychedelics have played in the origins of Western civilization and a real-life quest for a holy grail that, as you say, could shake the church to its foundations. Now, before we kind of get into what you explored in your book and how to shake the church to its foundations, I'm very interested in your story. You know, when I listen to your book on tape or on audio, there's no tapes anymore. I'm dating myself. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what came, came to my mind is you're an obsessive detective and a fantastic storyteller. And I'm curious, what led you to travel the globe in search of this story? Um, well, thanks, man. I, I, I take that as, as a compliment. Um, I, this, I definitely became obsessed with this, with this topic, and I'm not really sure why or how. It kind of got into my bones as, as a teenager when I was studying Latin and Greek under the Jesuits. I wound up going to college to major in Latin, Greek, and Sanskrit. I actually wrote my senior thesis about a medieval poem in, in Sanskrit and took a major left turn into law school because there's not a lot of, you can do with your life uh, with uh, dead languages. So um, at, at some point, um, you know, I never really left the, the classics and antiquity behind. And so even though I was practicing as an attorney, it was nights and weekends just kind of following up on what Houston Smith uh, used to call the best kept secret in history, which, which at its root is kind of this um, Indiana Jones type adventure with a Da Vinci Code twist uh, through the Vatican and the Louvre, really just looking for drugs. <laughs> there was this old theory in the 1970s um, that the ancient Greeks and early Christians may have been using psychedelics to find God. And, you know, for the longest time, there wasn't any science to prove it. So um, you know, while I felt versed in the, in the languages and some of the history where, where I was short was on the science. And so the storytelling comes in like my own journey over the past 12 years, just doing what a lawyer does, really, which is reaching out to experts and trying to fill the gaps in, in, in my own expertise and my own knowledge and kind of putting all these pieces together um, in, in an area of academia, you know, where silos tend to dominate. So if I had a question about history, I had to go to one professor or, or linguistics to another or biblical studies to another or theology to another or archaeochemistry to another. And it just took a hell of a long time, to be quite honest. I mean, I wish I could have done it quicker, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a character in the book. I tell the story in first person. It's really just my real life story over these past 12 years, trying to connect all these dots and, and having a fun time along the way. So with your training in the classics and then obviously having gone to Catholic school a majority of your life or at least a majority of your educational life I'm still confused not confused I'm still curious I should say how psychedelics fit into that whole exploration 
because even though you you know I know that you reference uh, Gordon Wasson and Albert Hoffman's book the Road to Ulysses you, you excuse me Ulysses um, so you've done a lot of the reading those aren't commonly read books if you're a Catholic <laughs> or even if you study the classics like so how did the sacred medicines even come into your consciousness as something to explore that you'll kind of want to bridge the gap between your classical studies and being raised a Catholic? No, that's a good question, man. There was there was a major light bulb moment, and I, I write about it in the intro to the book. I mean, psychedelics really were not on my radar until I was 27 years old. And to this day, I, I've, I've actually never tried them. That, that's the kind of the great irony behind this adventure. Um, I've, I've kind of taken this, this objective uh, approach to the evidence. Um, and I'm happy with that to date. I mean, it doesn't mean it won't ever happen, but um, I was I was really caught up in the science of psychedelics. Um, uh, and back in 2007, I was reading The Economist uh, there on the 57th floor of my law firm in southern Manhattan, uh, just a couple blocks from from Wall Street. And I was trying to find anything that wasn't about international corporate finance. Uh, <laughs> and I came across this article called The God Pill. And there it was. Uh. It was the very first data coming out of Hopkins about psilocybin the active compound in magic mushrooms, obviously. And there was this crazy stat about two thirds of the volunteers saying that their one and only dose of this drug wound up becoming one of the most meaningful experiences of their lives. And actually, if you ask Roland Griffiths today, who's the chief investigator at Hopkins, he'll say it's actually 75%. So imagine three and four people going into a lab, essentially, taking one dose of psilocybin and walking away saying it was one of the most profound mystical experiences of their lives. I mean, that, that was my light bulb moment, because the second I read that, I started thinking about Gordon Wasson, whom you mentioned, who yep. was the co-author on this crazy book that I came across as an undergrad and just kind of let go. Because in the late 90s, early 2000s, when I was studying this stuff, there just wasn't a lot of scholarship. And, you know, there was no conspiracy and my, my professors were happy to talk about it. It's just that there wasn't a lot of literature out there on this stuff. But when I read that study from Hopkins, I immediately thought about Gordon Wasson because he said the exact same thing. So this is the guy who, quote unquote, rediscovers psilocybin containing mushrooms in 1955. He writes about it, sparks the psychedelic revolution of the 60s, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but it's funny. What he said about his trip was that it reminded him of the ancient mysteries. So the first thing he thinks about when he's high on mushrooms in Mexico is this must have been what this must have been what was propelling the ancient Greeks to Eleusis, that place you mentioned, which is like the ancient spiritual capital of ancient Greece. And so from there, I just started connecting all the dots and went on this 12 year journey. You know, uh, there's a connection there for us, you and, you and me. Um, I actually did some recruitment for Hopkins in their first phase of their first study. Um, wow. Yeah. It's, uh, I brought Bill Richardson to DC to give some talk, to give a talk <laughs> uh, about, you know, because as you might know of his work, he was the, the last psychedelic researcher uh, legally here in the States. Um, so it's, it's interesting how there's a connection there for us, at least together and how that lit you up to, uh, open you back up to pursue this interest of yours. Uh, you know, so besides, I, have, I have you to thank then. Yeah. <laughs> I have you to thank, I think. Something, I don't know. I don't know about me, uh, uh, but Bill is an amazing guy and his team, his whole team are great people. I don't know if you've had the chance to like meet him or Mary, um, or Roland, but uh, amazing people, for yes, sure. Yes, I have. They're they're all amazing, and and Bill's book is spectacular. Sacred knowledge, um, yeah, I recommend exactly. that to, to to everybody. It's just that they're they're all incredible. Roland is one of the smartest folks I've ever met, and Mary, also, uh, in addition to being one of the kindest, they're they're a fantastic team. Nice. You know, you mentioned Gordon Wasson and kind of rediscovering or making popular, we might say, here in the States, the uh, magic mushroom cults of, uh, of uh, Mexico. Another professor that you, you point to a good bit is Carl Ruck, who's a professor of classical studies at Boston University. And it's interesting when you, when you read your book, how many different people like him, although maybe not popular, maybe not seen in, in the light of of conventional, uh, the conventional systems within their studies as like, oh, the, you know, they, they're not highlighted. Um, but there, there are quite a few people you point out like a Gordon Watson or Carl Ruck or others who kind of explored pieces of the puzzle. 
and yet weren't able to necessarily put it all together. How did you find these people? Uh, that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, so I, I'd, I'd heard about Gordon Watson and Carl Ruck through their book, The Road to Eleusis. But but like I mentioned, I, I kind of put it down. I picked it up and then put it down in, in the late 90s, early 2000s. And there it sat until 2007 when uh, Roland and Mary and Billet Hopkins brought it back on, on my radar. And then, you know, I just bought everything I could I could find on psychedelics. I was reading as much as I could for years and years. And then it wasn't until a few years later, I just reached out to Carl Ruck. Um, who now is this 85-year-old professor um, still teaching at Boston University. He's up at his pre-Revolutionary War home in Hull, Massachusetts, and I had the opportunity to visit him in 2018 and talk about his story. Nice. I mean, because in many ways, you know, it's a very personal story that I write about in the book. It's his story um, of uh, fall from grace and yep. eventual redemption, we hope, through the advent of this archaeochemistry and this new science that is out there testing all these ancient containers. But, you know, I call him the black sheep of the classics estate because in the late 70s, you can imagine at the height of the war on drugs, it wasn't the most popular thing to talk about the ancient Greeks or Christians uh, using drugs to find God. So, you know, he was excoriated for his views and his, his career suffered um, for, for decades. Um, and so it was just really, really fascinating for me to talk to him about all that and the reception from his colleagues and kind of the bias against drugs in academia, which, which now is largely lifted. I mean, I didn't find much bias, to be totally honest, when I was reaching out to folks at Hopkins and Harvard and Yale and Princeton. Um, you know, minds have been opened. I'm not sure entirely why. Maybe it's just the, the moment we're living in. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's, it's really um, rewarding for me to see this scholarship coming back around, you know, 40 years later. Right, right. What did your friends and family think about this obsession of yours, which actually had you literally traveling the globe? <laughs> yeah, I mean, so big shout out to my wife, um, nice. who supported me, obviously, through the entire thing. Uh, you know, we're trying to raise two young daughters. Um, and at some point, I mean, at the very beginning of the book, I mean, they were when I was writing, researching, they were, you know, three and one, they were four and two. Uh, they were, you know, young girls we were trying to put through through nursery school. Um, and my wife was there every step of the way um, uh, supporting it, which is uh, which is not easy. I mean, you know, this this was my night and weekend obsession. And then at some point in 2018, after I got the book deal, this became my full time obsession. Uh, so you can imagine what that was like bouncing back and forth to the Mediterranean and, uh, you know, just um, obsessing over these pages. Um, uh, so it was it wasn't the easiest thing, um, uh, but it, it was, you know, the adventure of a lifetime in many ways. I mean, this is a dream of mine. You know, I, I mentioned that uh, you, you do international law out of New York. What did your colleagues think of your, first of all, evening and weekend obsession and then eventually uh, you know, become your full time obsession? <laughs> I mean, I've heard from lots of folks, as you can imagine, since publication, I've heard, from, I've heard from lots of old friends, old colleagues. I mean, everyone just kind of has a smirk on their face. It's kind of, you know, like, how did this happen? And, um, you know, it's everyone's kind of just lot, lots of pats on the back and congrats. Um, it's just it, it's, it's funny to retrace all those steps, because I know for sure there were colleagues of mine who I talked to about this. I mean, back in 2007. 2008 in New York, all the way through D.C. I, I used to work two blocks from the White House in D.C. at an international bank, and I would I would chew people's ear off about this stuff. Anybody who would listen to me, and some did, most didn't. Um, but it's you know it's it, it's kind of a funny come full circle type moment. Twelve years later to to unveil this, which is awesome, and I definitely want to encourage people to either read. The Immortality Key, The Secret History of the Religion with No Name, or listen to it on audio at audible.com. You know, I'm very much also interested in your conversations that you had, for instance, in Spain, multiple conversations with very interesting people in the Vatican, which kind of surprised me that they were so open to letting you view certain things and read certain things. Um, but before we even get into the, some of those conversations, if you could, just for our listening audience, kind of lay out your thesis and, and why it's so important and possibly earth-shaking for the Christian religion and the Catholic Church. Sure. So um, to be brief, the, the, the thesis goes like this. And it's not my thesis. It's not my idea. Again, I'm kind of standing on the shoulders of the Gordon Wassons and Carl Rucks and even the Albert Hoffmans of the world. He was the third co-author 
on that book from 1978, The Road to Eleusis. So they had this idea um, about this beatific vision. So for 2000 years at Eleusis, this ancient spiritual capital in Greece that welcomed everybody from Plato to Marcus Aurelius for 2000 years. Um, they all universally attest to some kind of vision that transformed them into gods. It was said that only those who'd gone to Eleusis and participated in these secret rites um, would, would be guaranteed the afterlife. And you know, scholars have taken a look at this, lots of different theories have been bandied about, but nobody had the hard data to prove one way or the other what was really happening inside Demeter's temple there, 13 miles Northwest of Athens. It was a really big affair. Um, and what I say, the real religion of the ancient Greeks. And why does this matter? Because, you know, we're the inheritors of all that Greco-Roman wisdom. When you talk about things like democracy, right, whatever you want, people news every day, or the arts and the sciences or philosophy, the very concept of a university. This was obviously the benefactors of all these great traditions from Egypt and the Near East and Persia and elsewhere. But, you know, it comes to us through this Greco-Roman tradition. And when it comes to Christianity, uh, again, whether you're a believer or not, I think there's consensus that we're living in 2020, right? So that's the Anno Domini. It's 2020 years since the birth of Jesus, the world's biggest religion that calls to 2.5 billion followers. So, you know, these are big questions about the origins of that faith and the origins of the Greeks who preceded them. Um, and so, you know, what we're talking about here is really the foundations of Western civilization. Now, if, if a psychedelic vision was integral to those roots, it's something that we should be thinking about today. Um, and it's interesting because it's timely. We're living at this tipping point in the war on drugs where psychedelics are becoming either decriminalized or legalized or investigated clinically for all kinds of conditions um, like depression, anxiety, end of life distress, you name it. Um, we're just living through this really interesting moment. And isn't it even more interesting to think that the same experiences that are happening in the lab today under clinical conditions, this mystical vision may have in fact been the kind of thing that was happening 2000 years ago or 2,500 years ago. So, you know, we have the science to actually prove that one way or the other. That was the whole genesis and the thesis of the book. You know, and, and it's fascinating because you, you talk about the various well-known Greeks who participated in these rituals and had ecstatic experiences and then went to create various schools of thought. And I'm just thinking like, if I, when I was in grade school or whatever it was, when we studied geometry, if I would have learned how some of these schools of thought were generated, as opposed to just the school itself, that would have been much more interesting <laughs> that, <laughs> you know, Well, there's a lot more interesting. I mean, that, that's the thing. I mean, even just basic mythology, Right. Uh, we had this this notion. This is what we learn when, when we're in high school or maybe even younger, you know, that the Greeks believed in all these gods and goddesses running around on Mount Olympus. I mean, it's just it's total crap. <laughs> you know, do, do we really think that the architects of Western civilization thought that that Poseidon was standing in the middle of the waves with a trident, you know, a controlling controlling the weather? I mean, these these were geniuses. Um, uh, and, you know, for them, their real religion was trying to peel back the veil on death. They wanted to confront death. In fact, when you ask Plato what the definition of philosophy is, his answer is that, um, you know, it's the practice of death and dying. Those, those who study philosophy in the right way are dedicated to nothing else than death and dying. And Eleusis was the place where that happened. It was their real religion. You know, they wanted to see what happened after death and they wanted answers to life's mysteries, just like us today. And what's interesting is, is if you if if you're one to study other religious systems like Buddhism, Taoism, Hinduism, you know, and various schools of thought and philosophy and religion out of the East, a lot of people in the West, especially in America, go in that direction to find primary religious experiences because there were practices. When in fact, as you just pointed out, those same practices actually what were what created our Western civilization. So they don't, we don't actually have to look East. We can just look at our own origin stories to find a lot of these practices. And it's a shame that they've been kind of hidden from us, except for a few people, you know, who kept pointing it out. Or in the case of your book, we keep pointing out where it kept coming back up, but then the church and the bureaucracy would do its best to destroy these kind of these movements. But before we actually get to the church, um, and Jesus and, and, and such. Can you do a little bit more background on the Greek 
mystery schools and how it wasn't just just in Greek where these schools emerged and played a role in society. Yeah, sure. So the, the best definition of a mystery school is a set of ceremonies in which the initiate goes through some kind of process of death and rebirth. And in some cases, and I'll quote your friend Bill Richards, what he says about this death process, because it happens in the modern day psilocybin trials, by the way, and other psychedelic trials. Uh, Bill says that that death has to be acutely and terrifyingly real. Um, we think this is what was happening 2000 years ago, that the initiates went through some kind of ceremony, some kind of process where they really thought they were dying. Um, or at least or at least the ego was slipping away in one of these, you know, ego dissolving events where everything you thought you knew about yourself, about the world, about those around you just kind of disappears and you find yourself on the brink of death. I mean, there can be no rebirth unless there's there's a death. And so in traditional societies, um, that happens by any number of means, like physical austerities. Think about like tattooing or scarification um, or sleep deprivation. Um, so so things like that have existed as far as we know for time immemorial the way it came into ancient greece like i mentioned before was maybe through egypt for example um, or maybe through the near eastern fertility cults or even parts further east uh, but what was happening there is a similar kind of process of death and rebirth and what you have at eleusis what you have in the mysteries of dionysus for example is this shedding of everything familiar where you're just broken down in this terrifying experience. I mean, maybe it's supposed to be terrifying um, through the ingestion of a potion or through um, this long marathon, this long march that you make from um, Athens to Eleusis. Something happens in the course of those few days or those few hours uh, where everything you thought you knew disappears and you're reborn into the light of immortality. And that, that's kind of the long and short of the ancient mystery schools. And you know, after Greece, they also go into the Roman world. So Eleusis, for example, survives all the way into the fourth century AD, uh, which is to say several centuries in period. Um, you see mystery to lead right around the church is being born, for example. So at the same time as Christianity, you have all these ancient pagan mystery cults that were well known across the ancient Mediterranean. Now, you talk about um, th there's a th there's a term and I'm trying to recall the term, which is a continuity theory of the, from paganism to Christianity. Actually, might be the that, what is it, the pagan continuity theory. Yeah, the pagan continuity hypothesis. Exactly. Hypothesis. Can you speak to that? Because what I'd like to do is connect the story you just told in terms of pre-Christian ancient Greece to the rise of Christianity and how you, through your research, show that there's a continuity there. Yeah, and the continuity should, should it's almost self-evident if you just take half a step back and think about it. So, um, so take the Bible, for example. You have the Old Testament written in Hebrew. You have the New Testament written in Greek. You know, it's written in Greek for, for a reason. Um, ancient Greek was the sacred language of Christianity. So before Latin and before the Romanized uh, 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 Christian empire, right? Uh, you, what you have is this sacred language that, that uh, makes a bridge between the ancient pagan world and the new Christian world that followed it. And in this, in this Greek, in this language that the gospel writers and Paul himself was using, um, what they were doing is they were they were talking to Greek speaking communities who were familiar with these mystery rites and familiar with these pagan cults all around the Mediterranean. So even though the story of Jesus takes place in ancient Israel, Palestine, um, that where the church really begins to take root, right, is in these Greek speaking places. So like think of where Paul writes his letters. He writes in Greek to people in Corinth, right? Paul's famous letter to the Corinthians. So today that's only about an hour west. It's an hour's drive west of Eleusis, that same spiritual capital that I mentioned, which survived for 2000 years. You know, what are the odds that somebody in first century Corinth didn't know anybody who had been initiated into Eleusis just an hour to its east? It's, it's, it's absurd. So I, th I think if you analyze the language of Paul, and I spend a, a lot of time analyzing the, the Greek of the Gospel of John, what you see is an attempt to speak to people on their terms. And, and you know, the one thing that was common to both those worlds was this concept of wine and magical wine, magical sacraments, wine that had been spiked with all kinds of plants and herbs and fungi. And so we know that from the literature. And what I tried to do in my book was go out and find the actual scientific evidence of a funky wine that had survived from antiquity. And, and you know, we found it. 
and not only the wine from antiquity, but you even go back further and talk about the beer. <laughs> Uh, that uh, you know, kind of the pre pre wine users were drinking a beer concoction, which had various herbs that were psychoactive or psychedelic in nature as well, which is fascinating. That's right. So before the wine, there's beer, and we think beer is at least twelve thousand years old. And I, it's actually one of my favorite chapters in the book, um, graveyard beer. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I I talk about this place in in southern Turkey on the border with Syria called Gobekli Tepe. It's this, this giant megalithic site from 12,000 years ago. Um, back in 2012, some scientists scraped these giant limestone troughs and barrels and found uh, the uh, organic residue of um, calcium oxalate, which is kind of an indicator of beer fermentation. So we think they were fermenting beer 12,000 years ago. Um, the big question is whether or not that beer was spiked, right? Uh, with the kind of LSD-like potion that Wass and Hoffman and Ruck said had potentiated these ancient Greek mysteries back in 1978, right? This big controversial theory. No scientific data to prove it. Uh, turns out there is. Um, so I spent years and years going through these archaeobotany journals trying to trace this magical beer all the way from Gobekli Tepe to the classical period of a couple thousand years ago. And lo and behold, there was this discovery in the mid-90s in Spain, of all places, mm -hmm. where there was a Greek presence. And inside this Greek sanctuary in Catalonia, uh, this archaeologist, Enrique Tapons, discovered a tiny chalice about a couple inches high, which was subjected to analysis and it tested positive not only for beer, that magical beer we were looking for, but ergot. And ergot is that natural fungus that produces LSD. It's actually how Albert Hoffman was able to synthesize LSD back in 1938. And there it is in a tiny chalice. Um, a, a, a perfect smoking gun, if you will, for this controversial hypothesis from 1978. Now, if I remember correctly, the researcher, the Catalonian researcher, wrote in her own language, so it didn't get a didn't get wide reading. How did you f even find her? <laughs> yeah. So again, it's it's a really interesting story because this was discovered in the 90s. It was published in Catalan in her native language yeah. um, in the early 2000s. And so she tried to report this out to the academic community. It just didn't circulate very widely and certainly didn't hit the public. Uh, and there it sat for basically 20 years in, in this monograph that she typed up. Now, the archaeobotanist who worked with her, uh, Jordi Treserras, um, he was a really prolific scholar in the 90s and, and 2000s. And so he wrote a lot in Spanish. Uh, so I, I actually found his writing first. Um, but he okay. never really published that much detail on this, this you know, ergotized beer find, which I found incredible. So um, in, in reading him, uh, I eventually got in touch with him. I got in touch with the archaeologist Enriqueta. And I said, I mean, did you guys really find this 20 years ago? Why haven't you talked about this? Uh, and I know I talked to them every other day for about two years. Um, <laughs> I traveled to Spain. I took Carl Ruck, that 85-year-old professor, over to Spain so he could see the chalice for himself. Um, you know, I consider them just great colleagues to this day. I mean, they, 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 they had this amazing discovery. And by the simple virtue of the fact that, that she chose to publish it in Catalan versus you know, English or French or German, it just, it just kind of sat there. She... Well, <clears throat> I can say, thank goodness you discovered them and helped popularize their discovery, which added greatly to your story. What I'd like you to do, if, if it became with you, you mentioned uh, the Gospel of John or John's Gospel. Um, could you speak a little bit about the very early Christian church, Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of John, Gnosticism, and how prior to mm. kind of the Christian empire, um, how you know, kind of the, the die before you die still was playing a role uh, and the, the transpersonal nature of the Christian uh, uh, mythos was still alive in terms of personal experience for the first couple of hundred years of Christianity, at least within certain sects. Yeah, sure. So you, you got to think about the world into which Christianity was born. So I mentioned ancient Greek as the sacred language that acts as the bridge between the pagan world and the Christian world, right? So it's not like Jesus died in, 
you know, roughly 33 AD. And in 34 AD, the whole world wakes up Christian. I mean, this was a long process of acculturation that took uh, a few centuries, right, at least until Constantine in the early fourth century. So for uh, 300 years or so, you know, Christianity is this illegal cult. It's just as illegal as the cult of Dionysus, that pagan Greek god of wine and intoxication and orgies, right? Uh, you know, there's Christianity uh, and Christians, the martyrs being fed to the lions, etc. right? Um, there were no churches. There were no above ground brick and mortar churches or basilicas until Constantine. So where did the early Christians meet? They would meet underground, literally in catacombs, right? They, they would meet in private house churches where they were celebrating their version of what they thought the Eucharist was, right? There, 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 was, there was no um, like uh, monolithic form of the church in the first couple hundred years. It was local people getting together to celebrate a mystery religion, right? Where, where there were secrets at play and they were often hiding from the authorities. And so there's a lot of similarities to those ancient mystery cults, especially when you're going literally underground, right? Um, so Peter Kingsley, the scholar of, the, of, of ancient Greece, talks a lot about this practice of incubation going into these dark places, uh, essentially to, to meditate, right? These sacred practices that we've forgotten about the roots of Western civilization. You know, it's possible the Christians were doing the same thing. And so I actually spelunked into all these catacombs under the streets of Rome uh, with a Vatican archeologist to take a look at the frescoes that have been left behind. And what you see are really weird things like women, for example, not men consecrating some early form of the Eucharist. And you see frescoes of living people interacting with dead people in this kind of ceremonial rite of uh, communication with the ancestors. You know, really weird stuff that you don't see every So you're saying, Brian, that when you were underground um, um, in, I guess, Rome, you're saying uh, you discovered that women were playing a much bigger role than is being declared today or even the past many hundred years or a thousand, couple thousand years of Christian history. Um, can you speak a little bit more of the role you found that women were playing in the early church? Yeah, sure. So it's uh, I was I was examining all these frescoes that that date from uh, mainly the uh, third into the fourth centuries um, A.D. Uh, so the, the early days of Christianity and what you find uh, in the catacombs on these frescoes are women consecrating this wine and celebrating this wine in what's called the refrigerium and the refrigerium was kind of like this uh, this rite of the dead kind of like the day of the dead celebrations you might see in Mexico, for example, the families gathered around the tombs of the ancestors. Uh, the same kind of thing was happening in ancient Rome, except with a very Greek influence. Uh, so what you see is uh, these women consecrating this, this special sacred wine um, and we don't know why or how, but just, which is really interesting. And that's what we think was happening all the way back in Gobekli Tepe 12,000 years ago, except there, maybe it was that magical beer facilitating access, sacramental access to the ancestors and some kind of death cult. It's actually what the ar archeologists on site there say. It was some kind of place where the living were interacting with the dead. It was happening potentially at Gobekli Tepe 12,000 years ago at that Greek sanctuary in Spain that I mentioned, and also under the streets of Rome. So there's this really interesting continuity all the way through right into Christianity. So you were there given, given permission by the Vatican to be underneath exploring these things. You, you, the people you're with, some of the experts in the various fields that you were exploring, who brought you down either to the library in the Vatican or underneath uh, that you're just discussing, what were they? Th what did they think of what you were saying, in terms of, for instance, uh, the you know the the Christian uh, drinking of, of of the wine as symbolic of Jesus's blood and his you know his body, but you're actually saying no, there there was no symbolic stuff there. People were actually taking psychoactive substances to induce non-ordinary states of consciousness to have the experience, not symbolically, but in reality. 
Now, what were your conventional Catholic guides thinking of those explorations you're doing? Yeah, they didn't, they didn't quite know what to make of it. Um, but I, I will say, I mean, they were very cooperative and very intrigued, I, I will say. I mean, I met with lots of different folks going through the catacombs. I did go through the Vatican secret archives I mean, with the actual archivist and talk all about my research. Um, I managed to get into the archive of the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, um, just to the west of St. Peter's Basilica. Again, talking to the archivists and librarians there. Um, I actually travel through a few chapters of the book with a Catholic priest. Um, and, you know, the, I, I got to say, most of them were pretty open-minded about this stuff. You know, this is, it's ancient history to them. Um, and I'm, I'll never forget what the, what the archivist at the, uh, at the Vatican Secret Archive said. I think he said something to the effect of, you know, any, any research, any scholarship, if done properly, is worthy of a look. And so, you know, I was just very honest about my hunt for these, for these drugs in antiquity and the Middle Ages. And, um, you know, they would kind of laugh at me uh, on the one hand, but they were also there to help on the other. So just uh, for me, it was a really, a really fun time after 13 years of Catholic school to be there talking about this crazy hypothesis, like a, a surreal couple of years. <laughs> so to talk, talk to us about what happened um, after the first couple of centuries, after the death of, and rebirth of Christ, um, where you, we go from Christianity as a underground movement, where it seems likely that they're using psychoactive substances to induce non-ordinary states so you can die before you die. From that to what we have today, can you walk us through a little bit of the history there? Yeah, so the, the turning point is the fourth century. So I, I mentioned these frescoes from like the third and fourth centuries. Um, we know that they, there were other kinds of Christians, not a catch-all term for what became Christian heretics, at least according to the church fathers, that they were practicing an absurd form of Christianity, um, a non-canonical form of Christianity. They had other books that they were looking to, like the Gospel of Mary Magdalene that you mentioned, for example, or the Gospel of Thomas, like all those books. One. So there were all these other books that didn't make it into the New Testament um, and all these different versions of the faith that, that, that didn't quite make it through that crucible of the fourth century. So you see church fathers as early as the second century, like Irenaeus and Hippolytus, um, basically shouting down all these alternative versions of the faith and these alternative Eucharists. So Hippolytus, for example, uh, refers to the wine being mixed amongst the heretics as a wine spiked with a pharmakon, which is the Greek word for drug. He repeats that word pharmakon seven times in a row uh, in his Refutatio Omnium Aresium. So we know that drugs and wine were certainly part of some of the early Christians and that you know by the time the bureaucracy gets going, um, by the time that Eleusis is shut down, for example, back in Greece, it's all in the fourth century. And from there on, after, after Theodosius, for example, the Roman Empire becomes the Christianized Roman Empire. And a lot of these alternative sects basically disappear. Now, they disappear, from what I understand from reading your book and others, through a lot of force, not from just changing belief systems. Is that accurate? Yeah, sure. And, and, the, and the pagan world generally, um, you know, it's, 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 it's tough to say how much we can blame on the Christian church. And there, it's, 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 um, it's a controversial topic. I quote a book by Catherine Nixie called The Darkening Age, which is another really great book yep. about the, the destruction of all this pagan literature and statuary and temples and libraries, including potentially the Library of Alexandria. I mean, all this knowledge just in some cases literally went up in smoke, right? Um, this is before the bonfire of the vanities. So this is the fourth century AD when the church is really coming down hard on this stuff um, and including heretical versions of, of the faith. Yeah, sure. There, there was some coercion involved for sure. So uh, it's around the fourth century that um, the, 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 there's a concretization of the church um, in, into the Roman Empire, disallowing of other belief systems, et cetera, et cetera. But this whole kind of transpersonal movement does not completely disappear. There are still groups of people, as you point out in your book, historically, who kind of pop up 
um, using various means of inducing non-ordinary states of consciousness. You talk about some frogs, which I'd like you to talk about in a, in a moment that uh, have DMT, dimethyltryptamine. Um, there are various plants, nightshades, uh, uh, ergot, um, you know, various herbs and other chemicals out there that obviously people find you to use to induce non-ordinary states of consciousness. But can you talk about like some of how some of these things reemerged over time and then the church not, not too fond of them because there's a challenge to their authority, uh, did their best to destroy them? Yeah, sure. So I mentioned these, the, the, this Gnostic version of the faith essentially disappearing in the fourth century AD, for example. Um, it doesn't disappear completely. And what I call the religion with no name, which is this, this long tradition of mixing plants and herbs and fungi into beer and wine, I, I don't think it completely disappears. It just kind of goes underground. It takes on new form. Uh, it survives in the late antique period, as far as we can tell. And paganism itself, different kinds of paganism does survive, even in Italy, even in the shadow of the Catholic Church in Rome or Naples. You see all these temples, uh, these martiria being repurposed uh, for Christian incubation, right? So remember that that practice I talked about, about going into a dark chamber and meditating, the same kind of thing is happening with a Christian spin on it um, all across uh, southern southern Italy. It doesn't completely disappear. And, you know, the women who used to mix up that special wine that I saw on the frescoes in the catacombs, maybe they become some of the witches of the Middle Ages and Renaissance. Um, a friend of mine, Tom Hatzis, writes a great book on this called The Witch's Ointment. Um, and it's really interesting to, to trace the use of whether it's traditional medicine or actual drugs into this early modern period. I mean, the data is there. Um, and it starts with me, uh, with the personal physician to Pope Julius III, this guy Andres Laguna, mm. in the middle of the 16th century, he's talking about this witch's ointment, this green ointment spiked with what he says, uh, like hemlock, black nightshade, henbane, mandrake. I mean, all these really toxic, potentially hallucinogenic compounds. He says that this stuff is still around. The same kind of stuff that was there 1500 years ago, right? In the old spiked wines from the early days of Christianity, it's still there 1500 years ago. And the witches are using this crazy ointment to lather their broomsticks and their bodies and fly off, uh, at least in the astral realm, uh, to these crazy meetings in the woods. And so uh, even the Pope's physician thought there was some kind of pharmacological deviltry about. And I went into, into the archives to see further evidence of that. But you, you, you can trace the, this tradition all the way into the Renaissance, which is really fascinating if you think about it, because once the Inquisition comes along, it really disappears at least in the old world for good you know uh, the witch hunts were certainly a part of that and just the generational loss of knowledge was was another but as far as i can tell um uh, th these magical plants largely disappear after the inquisition you you also not only talk about uh, witches as as ones who uh, keep, keep kind of this the spirit alive and uh, play around with these psychoactive chemicals and fungi and and, other, and plants, et cetera, et cetera. And I, and I say play around, I don't mean in a, in a, a silly way, but utilize them to induce certain unordinary states of consciousness for healing and communication and, and um, mysticism, mystical purposes. But you also talked about uh, 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 Giordano Bruno, who is, uh, was a friar, a mathematician, poet, uh, and a cultist too. Could you speak a little bit, and you also actually mentioned him at the end too of your book. Um, I think you were close to a statue of his as you ended your book. But can you speak to speak to us about him and some of the other people that were kind of in this space as well? Sure. Yeah. I, again, I wanted to find evidence. And so, well, I, I wasn't holding out hope that I would find, you know, the hard scientific evidence for one of these spiked potions in the Renaissance. I, I at least wanted to see something in the Vatican's handwriting that attested to the survival of this kind of tradition, which is why I went into the archives um, there in, in the Vatican. And so when I went into the secret archives, I was looking for the, the manuscripts, um, the indictment against Giordano Bruno, who lived in the second half of the 16th century. So again, the same time period as the Pope's physician I mentioned, Andres Laguna, who's talking about this, this witch's ointment. Um, you also see Bruno in the late 16th century talking about 
drugs. Uh, he says that he includes the word in one of his works in 1585. He says benefici, which means poisons or um, you know magical herbs. So maybe it's that same tradition. Um, I, I couldn't find any specific reference in the 59-page summary um, there in a, in a mix of archaic Italian and Latin, um, but it, it did get me on the hunt of looking for these drugs. And so I went to the other archives, the Inquisition archives next to St. Peter's, and there I did find um, in the Vatican's handwriting from a manuscript um, right around 1600, um, another trial that had proceeded against a witch named Lucrezia um, in, this, in this giant 906 page volume uh, full of dust. Uh, I, I was reading an account of this woman uh, whom the church uh, had brought 39 accusers to testify uh, was mixing up this crazy potion. Um, she was mixing wine with ivy, which the ancient authors describe as hallucinogenic or at least maddening. And she was mixing all these crazy herbs and incense. And she would even repurpose the Holy Eucharist for her own nefarious ends. And they even talk about her mixing up an ointment, an unguento in Italian, uh, with some kind of lizards attached to it. I mean, so all the, this crazy, you know, Shakespearean almost, um, uh, you know, pharmacological stuff was, was happening at this time. And there are records of it sitting there inside the Vatican. So with all that you've, you've explored and you've laid out in your book, what kind of response are you getting from, as example, the Catholic Church or from other priests um, within other systems? You know, I mean, it doesn't have to be necessarily Catholic because everything you lay out is not just specific to the Catholic Church, but you also have the other rights churches as well. Um, and even the Protestant churches too. Like what kind of response are you getting from your book? I mean, you know, what's really interesting is that um, I, I talked to lots of different priests about this and the, the reception has generally been a good one. <laughs> I've talked to Jesuits about this. Um, I got a great review from an Orthodox priest, actually, and had a long discussion with uh, Andrew Sullivan, a fellow fellow Catholic boy, uh, about this stuff. And, you know, I try to be careful with, with my language. I, like, I don't know, for example, if there was some kind of psychedelic Eucharist uh, in the Holy Grail at the Last Supper. Uh, there, there's a lot of unknowns about this, and I, I don't think this speaks to the divinity of Jesus or the foundations of the church in that sense. What, what I think uh, is that there were early communities of Christians who may have used this kind of technology to recapture the magic of the early days of Jesus, right? Um, and I think just like, just like today, when I was reading those, those reports from Hopkins, you see, you see magic, you see people having these mystical experiences, these once in a lifetime transformative things that happen to them in the course of a few hours. I mean, is it so crazy to think that some group of Greek speaking Christians 2000 years ago was engaging in the same kinds of things, or that the Gnostics were doing the same after them, or that these witches were doing the same thing after them? Um, you know, I think that there, there's a place for all this in the church today. I, I don't think it's an either or proposition. I, I, I can see psychedelics today, for example, easily being incorporated into the church. I mean, not like spiking the Sunday Eucharist, um, but, you know, like, which, which would be a bad experiment. Uh, uh, but I mean, imagine that, like, you know, all these retreat centers that the Catholic Church has spent 1500 years uh, perfecting in all these different monastic orders and these monasteries and abbeys. I mean, what a wonderful place to, to imagine a really responsible use of this kind of technology under the right circumstances or for somebody at the end of life. You know, in the Catholic Church, mm -hmm. we have sacraments at the end of life. We have extreme unction, you know, and, and the last Eucharist that you take before death. Um, uh, colleagues of mine at, at NYU and Hopkins are studying psilocybin for those at the end of life and trying to ease anxiety and depression. I mean, for me, I see a lot of crossover between therapeutics and religion. And, you know, nobody knows where this is going to go over the next five, 10 years. But, you know, I'd like to think that, that these two worlds, religion and science, can actually work together. I love your vision. And as someone who has studied the use of uh, psychedelics uh, for health and healing and personal growth and development, um, and for spiritual growth and development as well. I'd love to see your vision come true, not just within the Catholic Church, but I would love to be able to see all faiths, if they so choose, utilize these sacred medicines for these purposes of exploration and connection and, and, and growth and development. Um, let me ask you a more personal question. The, the Brian who started this exploration many, many years ago, and the Brian who's now in this conversation with me, how have you changed in this process? 
that's a good one, man. Um, yeah, I'm a lot. I'm a lot more tired than I was 12 years ago for sure. Um, but at the, <laughs> it's kind of like it's kind of like have, having children. You know, it's 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 at the same at the same time, um, totally exhausting and totally fulfilling. Uh, so. I've always wanted to go down this rabbit hole and, you know, I present the book not as a finished product, but as proof of concept that things like archaeobotany and archaeochemistry and all this new science can really shed new light on the ancient past. And, you know, we are living at a time where I think we're just beginning to understand what was motivating our ancestors. So like part of me is, is super excited, um, the academic in me. And then, you know, that religious person in me at the very end of the book, I talk about my own identity crisis. Yeah. You know, th like this wouldn't have happened for me in a very personal way without the Jesuits. I mean, these these were the folks who taught me Latin and Greek. And I don't think this is what they anticipated from it. But they, they did always, you know, ask me um, uh, demand that I ask questions about the faith. You know, what good is faith if it's untested? Uh, and the weird part is that I feel closer to the faith um, and I feel like I have a better handle on what was motivating some of the earliest Christians in, in their version of the mass. And I think it's the kind of questions that should excite everybody, whether you're a person of faith or not. Um, there, there, there's the concept of great mystery here. And I mean, I know it sounds corny, but I, I think that this book only scratches the surface and it's the kind of thing that I'm gonna spend many, many years on. So you also have uh, your next steps besides getting some sleep. <laughs> um, what are your next steps for you with this uh, book and your project? So we have to keep this going. So I'm already working on um, a follow-up book uh, that is exploring, um, you know, new uh, but related themes. And uh, we're putting together a, a documentary series that, that we're, uh, we're shopping to uh, the networks and streamers, and, and that's going very well. And there seems to be some good reception for what this could be. I mean, it's really is kind of this, this globetrotting Indiana Jones type Da Vinci Code type adventure into these secrets. And you don't have to know anything about history just to kind of, you know, tune in and, and, and see where this leads. Because um, every time I pick up the paper or open my computer, uh, there's, a new, there's a new study that's just dropped about archaeochemistry or all these, uh, all these sciences converging on, on this issue. So, um, you know, for me, there's just a lot more work to do and uh, no, no, time for the, no time for rest. Uh, for folks who are interested in checking out your work, your website? Sure. Uh, so I'm not going to spell my name, which is uh, too difficult, but I'll say uh, theimmortalitykey.com. Uh, theimmortalitykey.com will take you to my website and you can see um, all my latest media appearances, including this one and um, some updates on the book and some great reviews and all kinds of stuff. Fantastic. So, so let me encourage folks to check out your book, The Immortality Key, Secret History of the Religion with No Name. You can find it at uh, local bookstores, obviously on Amazon. And if you prefer to listen to it on audio, it's on audible.com. Uh, Brian, this has been fascinating. Thank you for writing your book and for joining me for this last hour. Uh, I look forward to continued conversations with you. And uh, why don't we uh, finish up with uh, today's conversation with uh, one of my favorite singers and songwriters, song, Stuart Davis, called Already Free. <laughs> 